Welcome to the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency, helping you do more and be better. And now here's your host, Zachary Sexton. You are tuned into the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency. My name is Zachary Sexton, and today I have with me Greg Creech. Welcome, Greg. Welcome. It's uh, nice to be here, Zach. Oh, it's really nice having you, and it's finally nice having a a solid Skype connection. We've been battling back and forth with technology. I'm not going to say Max better, but um, maybe Max better. <laughs> but um, we're we're not here to talk about that. That's something we talk about on a lot of episodes. Uh, particular tools you can use to be more productive. This is actually going to be quite a different episode, but I'm I'm really excited about it. Greg is an expert in Japanese psychology, and we'll be talking about a new way to start thinking about taking action so you can live a more purposeful life. Um, a little background on Greg. He is the director at the To-Do Institute. It's an educational center for purposeful living, and it's in Vermont. And he's been featured all over the place, anything from a The Sun magazine to Self, Counseling Today, and Cosmopolitan. And his newest book, which we're here to talk about, is The Art of Taking Actions. Uh, the Art of Taking Action, Lessons from Japanese Psychology. And it provides a new perspective on productivity, drawing from some of the Eastern w- wisdom traditions. So, Greg, that is a little overview on you. But maybe you could take a minute to tell us about you personally. And who, who is it exactly you, um, you are out there to help, especially with the book in your institute? Well, in terms of just saying something about me personally, um, I'm... I can tell you right now I'm sitting here in uh, my library at the Toto Institute in Vermont. We're up on a little uh, hillside in the rolling hills of the Green Mountains. I'm looking outside at snow and my little chickadees at their feeder, and I have my golden retriever sitting here at uh, um, on the floor next to me. So it's uh, just a wonderful um, idyllic situation that I'm very grateful for. And I've been working in this field of Japanese psychology for 27 years. Um, I co-founded the Institute uh, a little over 20 years ago. Uh, and basically, you know, we do everything from a national certification program in Japanese psychology to individual workshops. We have a series of online courses, one of which is called uh, The Art of Taking Action. And the people who I think kind of resonate with our material are people who are um, focused primarily on trying to figure out how to live a meaningful life, a purposeful life, um, a productive life, and are looking for a psychological approach, support from psychology that isn't so feeling-centered, so feeling-focused, and instead focuses more on basically um, what you might want to accomplish in your life. That sounds good. You you were talking before we got on the air about how you had a story about the shift in paradigm from the more feeling-focused Western ideas, because basically everyone wants to just be happy and have a good time and not have to do things that are stressful or not fun or not pleasant, to more being more comfortable with your feelings but then still taking action. Can you tell us about mm-hmm. that? Well, um, if I go back uh, a long ways, um, and I'm looking at your your picture as we're talking, and and uh, you're obviously a pretty young guy from my standpoint. But if I go back to when I was 22 years old, I moved to the suburbs of Washington D.C. to kind of take my first full time job. And the thing that was very exciting about it is I it was the first time I had 
a solo apartment. I had a one-bedroom apartment in Alexandria, Virginia, um, that I didn't have to share with roommates. I didn't have any dorm people around. And so I felt really excited about having my own place. And I remember one day that I was in the kitchen, I was making myself some dinner, and uh, everything was ready on the burners. Uh, And I went to grab a plate, and there were no plates, there were no bowls, there was basically nothing because they were all stacked very, very high, dirty in the sink. Um, even though right below the sink was an automatic dishwasher. Um, And so I didn't have one plate to put my food on because of all these dirty dishes. And the reason they were dirty was because I never felt like washing them. And of course, the higher the stack got, the less I felt like washing them. So at that point, I had this dilemma. I had a a nice dinner ready. I was hungry, but I didn't have a clean dish. So I did what any self-respected 20, self-respecting 22-year-old bachelor would do, and I ran out to the convenience store and bought some paper plates. Um, and, and because the driving force in my life up to that point, and, and even sh- shortly after that, was really um, doing what I felt like doing and not doing what I didn't feel like doing. And what happened is the, the, the paper plate story is just one uh, kind of somewhat humorous example, but um, things in my life basically didn't go very well with that kind of approach to life. My relationships with women, my work situation, my education, um, my fitness, uh, the idea of going through life where you're, the main criteria for what you do and don't do is your feelings uh, means that you're kind of a slave to your feeling state. If you feel motivated one day, then you go to the gym. But if you don't feel motivated, you don't. And uh, and over time, you begin to pay the price for that in almost every area of your life. So what what brought you to the realization that maybe maybe you should be doing things that you don't feel like doing every once in a while for better long-term results? Well, a no- number of years later, when uh, you know, probably I was... Uh, around 30 or so, I stumbled onto this approach in Japanese psychology. There's actually several methods, but I just basically stumbled onto a book, and it talked about something called Morita therapy. And Morita was the name of a psychiatrist in Japan. His his Japanese name was Shoma Morita. And his approach to psychology really resonated with me because I was um, already interested. I'd been to Japan. I was already... um, uh, very familiar with Japanese culture and uh, Asian philosophy. And what I read in that book had a completely different approach to mental health, psychology, and life in general than anything I had ever been exposed to in terms of Western psychology. Uh, and sometimes his approach is, is referred to as the psychology of action. But essentially what he said is that um, our feelings are one of many things in life that we really can't control. Um, if we feel depressed, we really can't control feeling depressed. If we could, we'd just snap our fingers and we'd feel happy again. Um, and so his view was that basically if we can't control our feelings, which includes whether we like something, whether we're motivated, whether we're psyched up to do something, whether we're bored with it, then the best thing to do is to just accept our feelings, but not let it deter us from essentially taking the action that we need to take. So the idea was to accept one's feeling state, whatever that was. Let's say it's, it's feeling shy. Let's say you're a single guy and you're at a party and you're looking around and there's some um, attractive looking women there that you would actually like to approach, but you, you've always had this tremendous 
experience a shyness. You feel very anxious, fearful to actually go up to any stranger and introduce yourself. So you just kind of stand in a corner. Um, And what he would say is, accept the fact that you feel shy. Don't try to change or fix or manipulate your feeling state, but go ahead and take one step at a time. Go up to one of those women, introduce yourself, and start a conversation. Uh, and so the idea is you coexist with your feelings, but you take the action that you need to take to accomplish your purpose. Do you have any specific examples of how you started practicing this early on? Well, actually, one of the examples I can give was as I was doing counseling with somebody, uh, it was a man who was in his late 40s who was interested in starting a family, and he was very shy, and he had never been on a date in his life. Um, And so he wanted to meet a woman, get married, and actually start a family, except he was extremely shy. And what I did with him, which is something you generally wouldn't find in most forms of Western therapy, is we set up our sessions at a singles mixer at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Washington, D.C. So we actually would have our counseling sessions at a singles mixer. And I would stand there with him and we'd be maybe sipping a glass of wine and I would say, look around, is there anybody that looks like somebody that you'd like to meet? And he would point to the girl in the red sweater and I would say, you know, well, can you think of something to say to her? And he would think for a while and he came up with a you know, kind of creative line like, you know, hi, my name is Steve. And, and then I would say, okay, so how are you feeling about approaching her? And he'd say, I'm, I'm terrified. You know, she probably won't like me. She, she isn't going to want to talk to me. And I said, well, you can't control those feelings, but you can control walking over there and introducing yourself. And his purpose, his goal was if it turned out that, that there was some connection there to get her phone number. Um, and so he did that, and we did that for an hour, and that was actually our counseling session. And it was based on this idea that if he comes to my office, there's no single women in my office, so he's not going to accomplish his goal in my office sitting on a chair and talking to me. So we find a, a setting where he's actually capable of accomplishing his goal, which is much more likely at a singles mixer, and where he can actually take the action steps that that lead him in the direction of of essentially meeting somebody that he might be able to start a family with. And the um, the epilogue to the story is that not at the singles mixer, but about a year later, he did meet someone and he did get married and um, and had three children. That's amazing. That's such a good story. How does this differ? I've heard some theories about there with social anxiety, and this might just be one small sliver of what you can have with feelings, but the three-second rule. So you decide, oh, I want to meet that person, and you just, you need to do it within three seconds. Otherwise, you're going to think too much about it, and you're going to let those feelings overwhelm you. And so basically, this would be bypassing all the feelings by just taking action instantly. Does that fall in line with your philosophy, or is that a little bit of a different approach? And what do you think of that? Well, I think there's some some merit to that. And I think the, the merit is that um, and this isn't just true about you know meeting somebody at a party. I think it's true about almost any goal or important thing we want to do in our life, which is that we can um, overthink the planning stage. Right? We spend uh, a lot of time kind of trying to think about how we're going to move forward, and all the time that we're thinking about that, 
Now, in a party, that may just be, like you were saying, it might be five or ten minutes. But if we're talking about writing a book or some kind of uh, big project that's related to our career, um, we could be we could plan and think that for weeks or months or even years. And um, you know, I think that I, what I what I love is there's a phrase by an author named Stephen Pressfield. Uh, which um, I quote in my book where he says, um, you know, start before you're ready. So um, essentially, the way that you get ready for something is by actually starting, not by thinking and planning. And so I'm not saying that there's no value to thinking and planning, but I think as in your example, the danger is that the more we get caught up in kind of our mental ruminations, um, the more likely it is that we're going to get stuck or frozen, and then not move forward and take action. I really like what you said there. In your book, you talk about the art of taking action, and it sounds like not getting stuck in your own head, not ruminating over things and taking action that you know you need to take and not letting the feelings get in the way is one of them. Are there any other tools or techniques or mindset changes that you need to become a very good artist at taking action? Well, um, there's a number of points, I think, in, in the book that really draw on a different set of principles than the kind of traditional um, mm-hmm. getting things done, you know, getting things checked off your list type of approach that we tend to find in the West. And one of the things that I always like to mention when I'm, I'm doing a presentation or a workshop is the idea of presence. And uh, the person who I think uh, is really did a wonderful job of communicating this um, was a man by the name of Eugene O'Kelly, who wrote a book, and I'm kind of um, jumping ahead, but this actually is one of my favorite books that I recommend to people, and it's called Chasing Daylight. And uh, uh, Eugene O'Kelly was a Fortune 500 exec. Um, I think he was about 50, 52 years old, and he had a penthouse apartment and three yachts and, you know, vacation homes in Vail, Colorado. And, and essentially, he also had a wife and uh, Two two lovely children, um, and then within a couple of weeks, he went from that to being diagnosed with stage four uh, brain cancer um, that was inoperable, and he was given a hundred days to live. And he wrote this book with the idea that he was going to make those hundred days the best hundred days of his life. And um, one of the things that he mentions in the book that really st- struck me and kind of touched me in in a, in a very emotional way was this idea of commitment. And he said all the years that he was a CEO, he always saw commitment because, you know, he's, he's running a big company with thousands of, of employees and management people under him. He always saw commitment as a function of time, right? That you show your commitment by putting in the time. And, and we, we see that a lot in, in big corporations and, and uh, businesses. And he said what he learned going through this process of, of coping with his last hundred days of life and his brain cancer was that um, more important than time is presence. That commitment is really about presence. Um, it's not as much about how much time you spend, but are you really present? Are you really there? If, if you have a little two-year-old and you're you know, on the floor kind of playing with your two-year-old for five minutes and you're 100% present, that's really commitment. You know, whereas if, if you've got a, 
uh, 15-year-old and you're sitting at the dinner table except the entire dinner you're spending on your phone and texting and getting notifications, uh, you're not present. And so I think, you know, one of the key things is for us to see that it's it's not just about getting the things done and checking them off. It's about the actual experience that we have. Um, if we go through the day and at the end of the day, we've got everything on our list checked off and we think that's success, I would, I would say that it's not necessarily success. Success is if you basically can go, go back and you, you actually had, um, uh, you were where you were essentially involved with that experience every step of the way, whatever you were doing, whether it's a project at work or with your kids or with your family or a hobby. Um, it's not just that you got it done. It's that you were actually fully present. And, and if you do that, it gives you a different sense of, of life because um, it's not just about the checklist. It's about how you experience your life. I like that. When you say it's not just about the checklist and you're, you're wanting to be more present with that, um, one, one benefit that I know or I noticed about myself is the more present I am with a particular task or with a particular person, the more effective I am at getting that task done. And usually it leads to me actually finishing my to-do list a little bit more often than if I'm scattered and doing two or three different things at a time and trying to multitask. But it is hard because you do have all those text notifications and those email um, bings and um, maybe technical issues like we were having a little bit earlier to to keep things straight and only to be focusing on the present versus like falling into the future thinking about oh what needs to happen next or maybe thinking about the past just lamenting oh i wish that didn't go that way this is a difficult question by all means but are there some strategies that you like or that you found have the biggest return on investment for helping people keep more present well i think um you know, I'm a I'm a big opponent of multitasking, and and that puts me at odds with at least some people, kind of in the in the productivity arena. Um, and not us. It, it puts, We're it, on your you, side. Yes, I know. we're on your I, side. I I'm gr- I'm glad about that. Um, but I think I think in general, um, in the business community, and um, particularly people coming out of uh, college and and business school, there's uh, still a sense that you should be proud of the fact that you're good at multitasking. And so to me, that's a, a myth. And, and more and more, they're showing research now that indicates that, um, that you're not as productive multitasking as you are single tasking. When we were looking for uh, an office manager for our office, we actually put an ad in the paper and at the bottom of the ad, it said no multitasking allowed. And um, a lot of the people uh, contacted us did, didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> and so we would explain it. but. Um, but the the idea is, and particularly with people, but I think even with when we're sitting down at our computer kind of writing or working on something, is to try to keep our focus as much involved with the task at hand so that we're not kind of jumping around. Because what's going on in our brain at that time, it, it really is this kind of um, jumping from one thing to another. There's a, um, you know, I, I spent a, some time as a, Zen student in Japan, um, living in a Zen monastery when I was very young. And uh, there's a story about one of the Zen teachers that is is told about how 
um, he might have 500 students and he might only meet with each student, you know, once a week for three minutes. But in those three minutes, you felt like there was no one else in the world but you. You know, you, you felt like you were absolutely the only thing that existed in his world. And um, even though I'm not a, a Zen teacher, I want people who are dealing with me to have that same experience, you know, whether it's my children or my colleagues or people I'm counseling or coaching, um, so that when I'm working with someone, I want them to have that sense that I'm fully present, fully interested, uh, fully involved in what's going on in that in- interaction. And I think that um, I think there's a business payoff and a productivity payoff, but I think it's also about integrity. Um, it's about uh, um, looking back at your life, you know, in your later years, and and what kind of person do you want to be? You know, I published a journal called Thirty Thousand Days, a journal for purposeful living, and we got the title of that journal, Thirty Thousand Days, because it's the average number of days a person has to live. And every time I do a workshop, I started out by having people calculate how many days they have left to live, um, which you do mathematically by taking the number 30,000 and subtracting the amount of days you've already lived, and then you can kind of see what you've got left. And and most people are pretty shocked, unless you're extremely young, um, because once you hit about 40, you're past the halfway mark already, which means you have less days left than you've already used up. And when we start thinking about our life that way, we start thinking about our mortality you know, the question of integrity really becomes more important. You know, as I look back on my life on my deathbed, you know, what kind of person do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind of person that was always getting interrupted by notifications and texts and phone calls when I was um, meeting with somebody or when I was basically spending time with my kids at a basketball game? Or do I want to be the kind of person that is remembered as someone that was fully engaged, fully involved with you when you were with me? So you take the long-term perspective as a way of of trying to stay present, just thinking like, all right, well, long-term, I've only got so many days on this earth, 30,000 would be the average. Do I want to be present for them? Do I want to be um, there for the people that are in my life? You know, if, if we think about presence as um, kind of a habit of mind, um, which, which actually is how I think about it, um, if if you have a vacation coming up, if you if you plan on going uh, skiing or going to the Bahamas to spend some time on the beach, and for the three weeks before that, you're constantly distracted by your thoughts uh, in anticipation of what you're going to do and what it's going to be like, and this is going to be so great. Um, but what's happening, of course, is during all that time, you're really not staying present with what you're doing in the moment, right? Um, and then what happens is you get to the beach and and you're sitting there in that uh, environment that you dreamed of, right? It's this beautiful blue sky and warm sun, Um, except where's your mind? Your mind is on, I wonder what's going on at home, or I wonder how things are at the office, or I wonder what's happening with my wife or my girlfriend or my kids right now, because you're training your mind through the way that you're using it to develop habits. And if you train your mind to live in the future, then when you get to these wonderful places like beaches and ski slopes, then you're still living in the future. You don't get to really enjoy that part of your life. But if we train our mind to be present with the thing that we're doing now, then wherever we are, whether it's on the beach or in a meeting at work, um, uh, we basically get to experience life kind of in that present moment uh, instead of trying to live in the future, which 
which of course really doesn't exist. It only exists in our mind. So how do we train our mind to stay focused on the present? Uh, well, you train it by basically continuing it to bring it back. You know, th- there's nobody I know, and I've had you know wonderful teachers. I've studied under Buddhist teachers, for example, and Japanese um, uh, mental health professionals. There, there's no one who can do this perfectly. But um, but what people get can get good at is noticing that your attention has wandered, and and the quicker you notice that, the quicker you can bring it back to the present. So, you know, yesterday I was I was going up to the gym. I, I injured my knee playing basketball and I was going up to kind of do a workout and I'm driving in the car and, and my mind is just racing, you know, with things related to my kids and my wife and, and the Toto Institute. And, uh, and, and suddenly I realized that um, I'm basically living in my thoughts. I'm, I'm just kind of caught up in, in ruminations and thoughts. And and as soon as I realize that, I bring my attention back to where I'm actually, where I actually am. I'm I'm in this car. I'm looking at the scenery. I'm noticing how pretty the snow is on the pine trees in Vermont. Um, I'm looking at the pavement on the road. I'm noticing a hawk flying in the distance in the sky. Um, so the way that we practice this and get good at it is actually by practicing it. Um, and we have we have an exercise. Uh, I, I teach an attention program every year online, and one of the exercises, which is I think kind of fun, is called tea ceremony talk, um, and it comes from the tradition of the Japanese tea ceremony. Uh, and when I was in Japan, I, I attended several of those. Initially, I thought you had to be silent. You know, they're kind of doing this. Have, have you ever had any experience with a kind of formal tea ceremony, Zach? I have not. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing thing. You know, people train for years and years to make a cup of green tea. Um, and it's a very formal thing, and it's done in, in a, a special room in Japan with tatami mats. Um, but you actually don't have to be silent. The rule is you can speak, but you can only speak about what's in the room. So the person who serves you tea or the tea master, you could ask them about the teacup and where it comes from, the pottery, the scroll that's on the wall, which you can't read because it's in Japanese. What does that actually say? But you have to talk about what's in the room. And so we use this exercise as a way to keep people present. We'll use it, for instance, at a meal during our training program. So we'll say, we're going to eat dinner right now. And from the time you sit down until the time you get up, you're only allowed to talk about what is present in your environment. Right? So you can't talk about the stock market. You can't talk about the Boston Red Sox or the Blackhawks hockey team. You can talk about the food. You can talk about the um, what people are wearing, right? You can talk about anything on the walls. Um, you can talk about the view. We have a beautiful view from from our place here. Um, but it it sets a limit for you to talk about only what you can perceive. And in doing that, you actually have to stay present. That sounds like so much fun. When I as soon as I get back from my trip, I'm gonna try having dinner with my girlfriend and. In doing it tea ceremony style um, and just only be talking about that because it's so easy to get caught up in eh, maybe the, what's going on in the news or office politics of what's, what's going on for her or things like that. But if you're only focused on that, that's a really easy, actionable way to just stay stay where you are like in your in like literally in the same room with you. So that's so that's neat. I really like how you put that. And, you know, initially people find it very awkward when, when the, the first time people do this, they almost always find it awkward. And it's almost 
awkward in the same way as if you were right-handed and you had to sign um, a check with your left hand um, because we're not used to doing that. Um, but what happens is if you if you begin doing this as a way of, of training your mind, then you begin to realize that like, well, I can actually notice what I'm eating, you know, and the taste of the food in my mouth and, and the texture of the food in my mouth. People who are trained, you know, in the culinary arts, this is part of what is exciting for them, right? You know, to, to taste flavor and texture. But most of us, we sit down to dinner and we, we can eat a whole dinner and never actually taste the food because we're so distracted and caught up in things that actually aren't um, in, in our present moment of our life. Awesome. So, Greg, this is this has been great. I've been um, getting a lot out of this. Uh, I, it's now. I think it's about time for one of my favorite parts of the show. You already dove into one of your books. Can you remind us of that book that helped you become more productive? Yes, it's a book called Chasing Daylight by Eugene O'Kelly, and it's about his experience making the last hundred days of his life the best one hundred days of his life. Awesome, and we'll make sure that's in there. What about a tool or in there being the show notes? <laughs> You're getting ahead of myself. And the show notes can be found at theproductivityshow.com forward slash 30. Um, what about a tool or a resource that, that you might want to recommend to our listeners? Well, um, I'm going to take a risk and be a little bit self-promotional here because I, I teach an online course which um, is coming up at the end of May called um, The Art of Taking Action um, uh, getting started and, and finishing the unfinished. And it's a, it's a very unique course that I, I developed from my you know years of studying Japanese psychology where people actually come into the course with a particular project um, that they want to work on. And then we use all these principles, the things we've been talking about and a lot more, to help people in, th- in the next 30 days move forward on that project, complete it if they can, but at least move significantly forward. And it's always fascinating to me the the kinds of things people bring in as a project. Like we had someone who, who finished writing a Broadway musical that had been in their desk drawer for 10 years. Um, we had someone that got their CPA license. Um, you know, we had, we had uh, someone else that um, basically wanted to work on their um, uh, doctoral dissertation that they had been procrastinating on for the last six months. So it really varies and there's a community there, but, um, but I love the idea of, uh, of learning being, tied into our real life and and learning principles not just in some disconnected conceptual way but but learning them as we apply them to something that's important to us so um so that's a great tool for people who are interested in in doing a course which is a this taking action course that i teach that sounds great and yeah if people are wanting to um are, are a bit stuck and are still stuck at the time in may then that sounds like a great resource what about a frog and i don't know if you're familiar with this but one of our favorite uh, productivity gurus is named Brian Tracy, and he talks about eating that frog, so your most important task. Um, and it seems like for you, you have taught yourself to be more comfortable doing the things you're no, no longer that you don't like doing. Maybe you're no longer eating on paper plates, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, so is there any big frog or project that you have that you are looking to complete in the coming days? Um. I mean, there's there's a number of them, and and certainly the one that probably a lot of people can relate to is getting my taxes done, <laughs> um, and uh, so that that's certainly one of them. But the thing that I'll mention for people who are writers or aspiring writers is, you know, I'm working on, um, I, I'm working on another book, um, and 
the the book we were talking about, The Art of Taking Action, actually came about as a result of my father's death because um, it really kind of hit me in this very personal way uh, about our own mortality, about the fact that our time on this planet is limited. And um, and the, the week I came back from Chicago after he died, um, I decided I was going to work on this book that I had been thinking about for a long time. And I'm and I really um, made it my focus and, and got it done by the end of the year. And I'm working on another book now. Um, and I think the, the thing that I would you know suggest to people who are interested in writing um, or, or a book or a play or something is this this small step approach, which I talk about in, in my book. And it's the idea of just taking small steps every day. So um, if you're a writer, you might commit to writing one page um, in each day or, or even working for five minutes writing for five minutes every day. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, you can't, you can't get much done if you're just going to write for five minutes. But of course, what happens is if you write for five minutes and you kind of find your groove, um, you don't quit after five minutes. You might write for 20 minutes or 45 minutes or two hours, but your commitment is only five minutes. Um, and I think by taking those kind of small steps and making those small commitments, but on a daily basis, on a consistent basis, um, it's amazing how much we can accomplish over a period of time. And then we develop momentum, which is another principle that I talk about in the book. And momentum is so important. The idea of um, instead of trying to take on something in a weekend and get it done, you know, doing a little bit each day where we develop this momentum, this energy that is very consistent with the law of physics, right? That a body um, in, in motion will stay in motion unless it meets some kind of resistance. And the more we stay in motion, the more likely we are to stay in motion. That's great. This reminds me of a lot of uh, different things. We we just have different names for them. Your technique that you just talked about, we call solar flaring. So it's just uh -huh. a little action that could compound and lead to bigger actions because you're only committing to the five minutes. Just You're only committing to something that's so so small it would just be silly to say no to. But that often does lead to momentum. And I've seen that so much in, in my life and other people's lives, how doing the small action can actually lead to the bigger action. And as far as getting things done, consistently day in and day out. One thing that we've been very interested in and in, in talking about lately amongst the, the rest of the Asian efficiency team is the idea of rituals. And rituals mm -hmm. are things that you could do every day, um, not huge actions, not you're not moving boulders every day, but it's so consistent that over time, it'll compound to bring the results that you're looking for. So sort of like the old... Um, uh, idea of the, the at the beginning of chess there was this thought that uh, a guy came and, and invented chess and um, he asked for this reward and all he wanted was a single grain of rice on the first box of the chess piece and then two for the second and four for the um four for the third and and eight for the for the next one and it kept on doubling and it seems like it's such a small action but over time like the last checkerboard there's 64 little boxes on a checkerboard the last one is like trillion uh -huh. grains of rice and so that <laughs> compounding uh interest or the compounding actions it's really hard for humans to understand because we're such linear thinkers we think okay well if we take 10 steps we'll be 10 steps away but if you take 10 
uh, compounding steps. So each one gets bigger, you know, we'll be like halfway to the moon. And it's so hard for us to think of those ideas. But when you talk about a big project, like starting a book, you know, that is something that uh, it doesn't seem like those first few steps are meaning anything. But that's all it takes is just continuing to take those steps. So I really like how your idea uh, that you've pulled from from uh, the East is meshing with a little bit of what we're finding is working for us in the West. Um, you know, I think, Zach, we're, we've, we've become a very impatient society. Um, you know, we're used to having things right away, right? You, you send a text or an email and person gets it right away. If they don't get it for five minutes, we think there's something wrong with the system. And, um, and that leads us to this idea that when we when we do want to do something, you know, we want to renovate our house or build a garage or write a book or anything, we want to kind of do it right away and have it done. And um, and so if so, we tackle it as if it's like this project that we can just jump into and dive into and get it done right away. But in most cases, we fail, um, and we're much more likely to succeed with the system that you just described with this idea of small steps than this idea that you know I'm going to just kind of jump into this and spend the whole weekend on it and get it done. Um, and if people can do that, that's great. But I think um, you, you develop better habits um, over time, over the course of your life, if you work with this idea of self-discipline and small steps on a daily basis. And it makes it, I don't know, at least for me, when I'm trying to transition my thought from that, I'm going to make this heroic effort and I'm going to get all this stuff done today versus I'm going to continue to take action on the things that are important to me, and I'll make small steps towards those. It's a lot less overwhelming. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like I've just got the weight of the world on my shoulders. It just feels like, all right, well, I'm working on this, and then I move to this next thing. And it seems a lot more manageable. And maybe that better headspace that I'm in makes me a little bit more productive, because I've noticed that... And I'm still not amazing with it. I still sometimes just like, this needs to get done now. Why Why is this taking so long? Uh, sometimes with articles, you know, it'll be days before the first draft's even finished. And I'm like, whoa, why is this taking so long? And I know a book would just be a completely new endeavor. Or our, we're so excited about rituals because we're coming out with a course on, or just came out with a course on rituals. And that took uh-huh. months. And there were some things where I expected to get done in a day that ended up taking me two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. Some some videos in the course that I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just hop on uh, the the uh, my video software. I'll start talking, and it'll make sense, and it'll be coherent, and it'll make it'll be part of a bigger picture. No, that's not how it works. You have to plan all these little pieces out and coordinate them with the rest of the team and make sure that your research has all been done and that the stories that you throw in there all make sense. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. It sounds like both of these, these things, uh, taking small steps as, as well as being present with where you are um, and who you're with, and the room you're in are are almost things that humans just their whole life are going to have to struggle with because of maybe we're evolved to to notice things and get distracted easily. Um, but um, the the more you can and the more practice you say, the more you're getting in the habit of doing it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like um, leads to a little bit more fulfillment in your life and a little bit more meaning in your life. 
Absolutely. And and I think also more self-discipline, which plays into being able to to do more of what you believe you want to do with your life. Well, that's great. I like our little extra bonus after starting the frogs. I like where it went there. So if people would like to dig deeper into some of the t- topics we discussed, we'll put uh, the links in the show notes as well as Greg's uh, book, Frog and uh, Tool in the in the show notes, which will be the productivity show.com forward slash 30. And Greg, where can people find you online? Well, um, you can go to our main website, which is the todoinstitute.org. So it's T-O-D-O Institute, one word, dot O-R-G. Um, and my book is actually, um, uh, there's a website for my book called artoftakingaction.com um, in which you can actually read some sample chapters. So that's another way to do it. And through either of those websites, you'll be able to um, connect with me and and uh, um, we do residential programs here and we always uh, have people coming from around the world so um, if you ever have an interest in spending a week or 10 days in, in Vermont studying this stuff um, we'd love to have you well Greg thank you so much for your time thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and we'll, we'll see you next time thanks for listening if you enjoyed this show and would like to learn more about optimizing your productivity visit us at asianefficiency.com 